got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn in them to the 12th chapter of the book of Acts. We're going to cover chapter 12 this morning. There are two groups of people in this room. Those who have been given the mission and those who are the aim of the mission. Back in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said before he ascended back to the Father, to his followers, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Those who are in the first group are those to whom Jesus gave that mission. And those who are in the second group are the aim of that mission. Those who are in the first group are those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. They've recognized that because of their sin and rebellion against God, they are hopelessly lost in this life and in the next. And their only hope to be found, to be reconciled to God, to be forgiven of their sin, is to trust in Jesus' perfect life, substitutionary death, and bodily resurrection as their only hope. They have surrendered their lives and their eternities to King Jesus. He is now their Lord. And His marching orders have become their life's mission. That's the first group. And this morning's passage is primarily focused on that first group. As this passage seeks to encourage faithfulness to that mission in spite of whatever opposition might come. But if you're in that second group, you might believe in God. You might even believe that Jesus is his son. But you'd rather do things your way than his way. And you would rather trust in your own ability to earn his favor than to trust in his son's work on the cross on your behalf. And if that describes you this morning, then you're the aim of our mission. And as we unpack this passage this morning, as we talk about being faithful to this mission in spite of opposition... What I don't want you to walk away from is conflating our efforts to try to be obedient to this mission as if that suffices as a saving response to the gospel. Friend, that's not the case. Instead, your sin has so separated you from God that no amount of obedience to anything that God says can do anything whatsoever to improve your standing before Him. Your only hope, friend, is to throw yourself at the mercy of God and to trust in His Son, Jesus Christ, as your only hope to make Him your Lord and your Savior. We want you to know that it is you and those who are in a similar condition as you that is the aim of this mission. You are those to whom we have been sent to be witnesses of Jesus and His gospel. So let's read chapter 12, and read about opposition as we're seeking to fulfill this mission. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. 
he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought, it was, thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to, into the city. It opened to them, it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him, he did not find him. He examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On one appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God, not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to gather together as your people and to offer worship and praise to you that you so deserve. Thank you for the privilege to be able to open up this book and to read it. Uh, We thank you for your Holy Spirit that attends to the reading of your word with understanding. We pray, Father, as we walk through this story that you would give us not just a better understanding of what it says and what it means, but how we are to live in light of it. 
So, Father, we ask that you would uh, sanctify us, that you would encourage us, uh, that you would give us a stronger faith in your sovereignty, uh, that we would learn to trust you as we seek to be obedient to the mission that you've given to us, Lord, no matter what opposition we might face. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this passage is laid out for us like a three-act play. In the first five verses, we see the setting of the opposition. In verses 6 through 19, which is the bulk of the chapter, we see the rescue, the miraculous rescue from prison. And then in the closing verses, verses 20 through 25, we see the result of what happened to both Herod and to the church. So there's three acts here that I want us to walk through. And in each of these three acts, there's going to be two scenes. So three acts, two scenes in each act. And what I want us to do is I want us to watch the, the play. I want us to watch the play as Dr. Luke unfolds it for us on the pages of Scripture. And as we do, we're going to learn some important lessons. We're going to learn some lessons about God's sovereignty. We're going to learn some lessons about prayer, some lessons about facing opposition in the face of advancing the gospel. But the overarching point of this play is to teach us that although we will face opposition, as we seek to be obedient to, to King Jesus' mission to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, although we're going to face opposition of some measure as we seek to be obedient to that mission, we can trust, we can trust, church, that God can and will do whatever is necessary to build sustain and grow his church and advance his gospel wherever it needs to go. So let's look at Act 1. Act 1, we find the opposition. And again, in each of these acts, there are two scenes. So in scene 1 of Act 1, we see that the opposition comes from this guy named Herod. Now, there are a number of Herods in the New Testament. And so uh, they're all bad. They're, they all have uh, bad parts to them. And so it's confusing to understand which one we're talking about here. This is King Herod Agrippa I. We saw his grandfather back in Matthew chapter 1. The King Herod the Great who had ordered the slaughter of all of the male children when Jesus was born in Judea. And Joseph and Mary, his parents, took Jesus and fled into the wilderness to escape Herod the Great. We saw this guy's uncle uh, several chapters later in Matthew 14. He was infamous for beheading John the Baptist. We're going to see his son, King Herod Agrippa II, in chapters 25 and 26 as he brings Paul on trial in this same area. But this guy here in Acts 12 is King Herod Agrippa I. He was born into aristocracy. He was a childhood friend, a school-age friend of Claudius the emperor, the same emperor who would one day put him in charge of the region, the provincial region of Judea. And he was known to be a political chameleon. He would do whatever he had to do to get the most people to like him. He walked a very thin line between pleasing Rome and pleasing the subjects under his rule in Judea. He was a people pleaser of the worst sort. 
And we see here in this passage where that led him. Now, the the Christians that are there in Jerusalem, in that early church, were seen at this time and in this place as a very unwelcome and unwanted sect of Judaism. And so in his desire to please the Jews, this Herod became violent against the Christians. And he had James, the brother of John, executed. He had one of the apostles, James, executed there in Jerusalem. Now, it seems from the text that this was a test for Herod. He was testing the waters to see if this would really please the Jews. He knew that Peter was really seen as the leader of the Christians there in Jerusalem, but he didn't, he didn't go after him first. Instead, he went after James, still an apostle, but not their leader, Peter. So he's testing the waters to see if this would please them. But after Herod saw that, that it did please them, that the Jews there in Jerusalem were very pleased that Herod is doing something about the sectarian Christians that are running the streets, he decides to go after Peter. And so he arrests Peter. He throws him in prison, presumably with plans after the Passover to bring him out and do to him the very same thing that he had done to James. So the setting of this play here is opposition. Opposition to the church. Opposition to the church seeking to fulfill its mission to advance the gospel. And that has always been the case from day one. The church has always been opposed by the world. And that opposition continues today. Thankfully, by God's grace, in this country, Christians are not thrown into prison or executed because of their belief in Jesus. But friend, it happens today. Most of us in this room are old enough to have etched into our memories forever the picture of 21 Egyptian Christians being led out onto the beach and beheaded by ISIS terrorists. 2015, just seven years ago. Since 2009, 43,000 Nigerian Christians have been killed because of their faith in Jesus by the Islamic terrorist group Boko Haram. 43,000 of our brothers and sisters. According to Open Doors USA, a group that monitors worldwide persecution against Christians, according to them, approximately one out of every seven Christians in North Korea is in a labor camp, in other words, a prison camp, where they are subject to not only forced labor, hard labor, but also torture, in some cases sexual abuse, and starvation. And the writer of Hebrews exhorts us, remember those who are in prison as though you are in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Thankfully, we don't face that kind of gospel opposition in our country today. We may someday, but not today. Today in America, we face threats to our religious liberty. Now, those threats are real and they are growing, but they are a far cry from what our brothers and sisters experienced in the early church in Judea 
and from what our brothers and sisters experience in other places of hostile environments around the world today. But the point here is that when we are faithful to open our mouths to share the gospel, to provide a defense for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, and, and to graciously and lovingly and winsomely encourage them to repent of their sins and to trust in Jesus Christ alone. When we are faithful to open our mouths and say those things as we are commanded by our Lord to do, we should expect opposition. We should expect it. Thankfully, that opposition doesn't include for us prison and execution, just rejection and ridicule. But you know what? If we're not willing to face that opposition, if all it takes to silence our proclamation of the gospel is a little bit of ridicule and, and rejection, then church, woe be to un, unto us if the Lord ever allows the church in America to face serious opposition. And that leads me to the second lesson from this passage, and that is that God is sovereign over that opposition. Why was Peter released from prison and James wasn't? We find it very easy to affirm the sovereignty of God in the release of Peter miraculously from prison. But does that mean that God wasn't sovereign and wasn't in control when James wasn't? Of course it doesn't. Did the church not pray hard enough for James? Did they not pray as hard as they did for Peter? There's absolutely nothing in the text that would suggest that. God was sovereign when Peter was released, and God was sovereign when James was not. In his divine wisdom, Peter released was released and James wasn't. God is sovereign in both. God doesn't change. He's not 100% sovereign over here and then somehow less than completely sovereign over here. He is always 100% sovereign, 100% in control all the time, everywhere. In his divine and sovereign wisdom, Peter was released and James wasn't. In his divine and sovereign wisdom, Christians in places like Afghanistan and North Korea and Nigeria will probably face opposition to gospel proclamation that we will never know ourselves. Why? That's the big question, isn't it? And at the end of the day, we just have to say, because God is God and we are not. We don't have His knowledge. We don't have His wisdom. We don't know the future like He does. And if we did, if we somehow were given God's knowledge and wisdom and His understanding of the future like He has in these situations, friend, we would not for a moment question why He does what He does. And so instead of arguing with God, our response to opposition should be the same as the early church's response to opposition. And that's what takes us to the second scene of Act 1, where we see that the church responds with prayer. Look at verse 5. 
So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. They have a prayer meeting. That's their first response. They begin to pray. That's the front line of the battleground for them. And later, when Peter finally makes his way to Mary's house, what are they doing? They're still praying. They're still in their prayer meeting. Another James, though, this one, the brother of Jesus, would later write in his epistle that the prayers of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Or as I love the King James Version of that verse, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Our first response to gospel opposition should be prayer. Not complaining, not fighting with God about his sovereignty, not posting on social media about how our religious freedom is being threatened. Friend, those are a complete waste of our time. You're never going to win anyone over by arguing with them on social media. You know that, right? Two reasons for that. Number one, because people don't go there to learn. People go there to argue, just like we do. And number two, because of those algorithms that are out there, they're probably never going to see your post anyway. Trying to win an argument, a political argument on social media is almost as impossible as winning an argument with God. No, if we want to do something effectual in response to gospel opposition, we need to go to our knees. Church, in prayer, we have the ear of our Father. And although we don't obligate Him to act when we ask Him to, we also know and believe that God not only ordains what will happen, but He ordains the means through which He will make it happen. And so God not not only only ordains what will happen, but he's going to ordain the means. And God's chosen means for effecting his will is answering the prayers of his people. That's what he chooses to do. The testimony of Dr. Luke is that the church prayed and the chains fell off. That doesn't mean that they didn't pray for James. It doesn't mean that they didn't pray hard enough for James. It simply means that in this instance with Peter, the church prayed earnestly and God showed up powerfully. And we are meant to learn from this that our first response to gospel opposition is prayer. As we mentioned earlier, in the face of violent and serious opposition, The writer of Hebrews exhorts us to remember those who are in prison as though we are in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. We ought to pray for our brothers and sisters around the globe who at this very moment are in the very same condition that Peter was on this night. They're in prison. According to a Christianity Today article from two years ago, every day around the world, 12 Christians are arrested or imprisoned, and five more are abducted simply because of their faith in Jesus. Every day around the world, 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked, either 
bombed or vandalized in some way. And every day around the world, 13 Christians are killed because of their faith in Jesus. That's today. Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let us pray for their release. But more importantly, let us pray that they would be strong in their faith and that their witness would remain bold no matter how bad the opposition gets. And let us further pray that as a result of their witness, our faith might be strengthened so that we would be faithful to engage in this mission no matter the opposition that we might face in our day and time. Let's move on to the second act of this play. The second act comes to the rescue. This is the largest portion of chapter 12. There's also two scenes. In the first scene, verses 6 through 11, there's this supernatural deliverance from Peter of Peter from prison. And then in verses 12 through 19, we have this humorous, almost comical uh, notification of what happened to the church. The first thing that Luke tells us in scene one of act two of this play is that Peter is asleep in prison. And Luke intends for us to be astounded by this because he goes to great lengths to describe the dire situation that Peter is in here. Look at verse 6. It says, Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night Peter was sleeping. And so you hear the tension that's being built by Luke as he writes this. On that very night, Herod's about to, to go get him, to do to him the same thing he had done to James. The very last thing that we would expect Peter to be doing at this moment on the eve of his execution is sleeping soundly. But there he is. And listen to how Luke describes his sleeping quarters in the cells. Incredible. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the doors were guarding the prison. So four, four guards at a time. We're told earlier in the passage that, that Herod had assigned four squads. It was four squads of four soldiers that they would work on three-hour intervals. So I don't think these guys were asleep even. So they're awake. He's in chains next to them, and he's sleeping like a baby. He's sleeping so soundly that when the angel shows up in this bright light in the cell, he has to smack Peter on the side of the head to get him to wake up. He's sleeping like a baby, chained between two guards with two more guarding the door, the prospect of being executed by Herod in the morning, and he's sleeping. I would call that a peace that surpasses all understanding. The Apostle Paul would later write to the Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and thanksgiving, with supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Then he says this, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, I'm convinced that one of the things that the church prayed for Peter, and probably one of the things that Peter was praying for himself, was that God would give him a peace no matter the circumstances. 
no matter what kind of opposition he faced. And make no mistake, the peace that Peter experienced here had absolutely nothing to do with the impending deliverance that was coming. There is nothing in the text that gives us any indication that Peter had any reason to expect that this was going to happen. In in fact, quite the opposite. Because as he's being delivered, as the angel is leading him out of prison, what are we told? Peter thinks it's a dream. He doesn't even think that what's happening to him is real. He doesn't realize it's real until he gets out on the street and the angel's left and he's out of prison. No, this peace on the face of Peter as he sleeps like a baby bound between two soldiers with the prospect of being executed and put to death in just a few short hours has absolutely nothing to do with a supernaturally deliverance of him, but rather simply because he was trusting that whatever God does, he does for his good and God's glory. I would submit to you that I would, I would think that James probably had the same kind of peace as he was executed. It's the peace that we saw on Stephen's face a few months earlier as he was stoned to death on the streets of Jerusalem. And so the lesson here is that the peace of God has nothing to do with our circumstances. It has everything to do with our faith in God. Unexplainable peace comes only from trusting God unequivocally. If we do not trust that God is sovereign and that God is good and that everything that He does, He does for our good and His glory, then we're not going to know peace even in the face of trivial opposition, much less life and death opposition. If we do not trust God, then friend, we will be saddled with the burden of endless anxieties about what might happen. Now, I don't want to sidetrack from this main point here and Talk all about anxiety and worry and the connection that there is with our faith in God. That's a sermon for another time. But this morning, I want us to anchor that lesson in the context and the thrust, the main thrust of this passage. What is God saying to us in the story of Peter's miraculous and supernatural deliverance from prison? He's saying that we who've been given marching orders from King Jesus to be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, we will face opposition from the world as we do this. But we can trust God. We can trust that God can, in other words, he's able, and that he will do whatever is necessary to build his church and advance his gospel wherever it needs to go. And what we see on the face of Peter as he snores between two soldiers is what it looks like to embody that kind of trust. See, unexplainable peace doesn't come from everything working out for us just the way we want it to, as if that ever happens. No, unexplainable peace comes only from trusting unequivocally in God. Stepping out in faith and putting feet to that unequivocal trust. 
by opening our mouth to declare the hope of the gospel to those that God has put around us who so desperately need to hear it, in spite of whatever opposition may come our way as a result of doing so. Because sometimes the advance of the gospel is best served by the release of Christians from their prison. And sometimes the advance of the gospel is best served by the martyrdom and suffering of Christians. Just ask Stephen. Whatever it is, he asks us to trust him. Our place is to trust God without condition and without equivocation. Another thing that's highlighted for us here is the power of God. Before I get to that, let me ask you this question. I want you to think about this. What missional task has God put before you that will require you to trust him unequivocally? What missional task has he put in your life, has he put right in front of you that's going to require you to trust him without equivocation? Maybe it's sharing the gospel with that neighbor, risking rejection. Maybe it's being more vocal about your faith in the workplace, risking your career or an advancement. Maybe it's serving the less fortunate in our community, risking your time and money. Maybe it's going on a short-term mission trip, risking comfort. Or maybe, perhaps, surrendering long-term to the mission field, risking your future. Whatever it is, whatever that risk might be, I want us all to sleep like babies. I want us to sleep like babies because we've got an unexplainable peace rooted in an unequivocal trust in God. So let's move on to the next thing that we see highlighted in this part of the play, and that is that, that the power of God to do whatever is necessary in order to advance the gospel. Luke is determined to show us the power of God here. Listen to what we see. First, we see an angel. An angel of the Lord appears out of nowhere in this cell next to Peter. Friend, there is no place so isolated that God can't show up with his presence. Second, we see a light shine in the cell. Friend, there is no darkness so dark that the gospel can't penetrate. Third, we, after the angel tells him to, to get up, put his clothes on, what happens? The chains just fall off. Friend, there are no chains that God can't break. Fourth, they just walk right past the guards. We're not told how that happens. We don't know if they're asleep. I don't think they were. They're somehow incapacitated. Like the, like the guards guarding the tomb of Jesus. We don't know. But they just walk right past them. Friend, no weapon formed against you will prosper. Which, by the way, does not mean that you won't get struck by a weapon. But it means that the intended purpose of the enemy in bringing that attack against you, which is to prevent God from using your life to build the church and advance the gospel, that purpose will never prosper. And fifth, that iron gate, that final gate that they have to pass through, that's shut, 
It opens automatically. Look at verse 10. It opened for them of its own accord, which means that it was an iron gate that was shut and God opened it. Friend, there are no closed doors that God cannot open. It doesn't mean that he will open them. But if they're closed and he wills that they will be opened, there is absolutely nothing that can stand in his way. And you know what? Those are five glorious truths that are good news for us as we seek to bring the gospel to a lost world, whether it's the lost in our proximity or the lost at the ends of the earth. There is no place so isolated that God can't reach with his presence. There is no darkness that the light of the gospel can't penetrate. There are no chains that God cannot break. There is no weapon formed against us that will prosper. And there are no closed doors that God can't open. In stories like this in the Bible, God whispers those truths to us. And then he says, so trust me, child, and be my witnesses. Just go be my witnesses and trust me. See what I'm like? Peter supernaturally delivered from prison. And then the second scene of Act 2, we have this comical story of Peter making his way back to Mary's house, the mother of John Mark, and all the folks, all the adults are in the back praying for Peter. Peter knocks on the door. This little servant girl, Rhoda, comes to the door, recognizes Peter's voice, and runs back and tells the adults that Peter's at the door, but he didn't, she didn't open the door for him to let him in. And, and you know Luke is smiling as he writes this and, and certainly expects his readers to find the humor in this. It, it reads like a scene in a sitcom. She forgets to open the door. The adults don't believe her. They say that she's out of her mind. Meanwhile, Peter keeps knocking. And when they finally open the door, they're amazed. It's Peter. You know, their amazement that Peter is released, something that I'm sure is part of what they were praying for, but their amazement that he's standing there in the doorway always reminds me, to my own shame, of all the times that I somehow am surprised when God answers my prayers. Why are, why are we surprised when our Father answers our prayers? Oh, we of little faith, right? Let's turn our attention now to the final act in this play where we see the results. The final act also contains two scenes. The first scene, we see Herod's demise, and in the second scene, we see the churches and the gospels advance. So what happened to Herod? As we're told in the text, he goes back to Caesarea. Caesarea, again, is the, is the capital of the Roman province, so he goes back there. And apparently he gets into some kind of squabble with the people in Tyre and Sidon up the coast. We don't know exactly what that squabble is about. It has something to do with food and probably trade and commerce that needed to happen between them. But in an attempt to bring resolution to the squabble, Herod or organizes this great spectacle. And he assigns himself with the role of keynote speaker. And he dresses up in his finest robes and he delivers an oration for which he is lauded as one who is more than just a mere man, but one who has the voice of a God. 
the Jewish historian Josephus also records this event and says that Herod in this instance was wearing this glistening silver robe that reflected the sunlight in such a way that he appeared divine, more than just a man, and that the people who were gathered there hailed him as a god. And verse 23 says this, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. The vainglory of King Agrippa I that was manifested in his people-pleasing and doing whatever he had to do to get the most likes was ultimately what caused his demise. Pride does come before the fall. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. There's a warning here for us. And the warning is this. Those who oppose the Lord will lose. They'll lose. Now, in our day and time, it might not appear that they're going to lose. It might look like they're winning. But that's because we only see with human eyes in time and space. And the Lord says, those who oppose Him those who oppose his church, those who oppose the advancement of the gospel, will lose. Job asked, why do the wicked prosper? And when Job finally shuts his mouth long enough to hear God answer him, God says, in essence, in those closing chapters of Job, Job, you don't see the end of the story. You only see in part. You see with human eyes. You only see what's in front of you. Their destruction is sure. Those who oppose the Lord will lose. So don't be one of them. Don't be a loser. But what happens to the church that's opposed here? What happens to the advancement of the gospel that is opposed here? Look at verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. What does that even mean? What does it mean that the word of God increased and multiplied? Well, it doesn't mean that the Bible got bigger or that the Bible got longer here, but the influence of the word of God through the gospel increased and multiplied as the gospel was advanced and as the Lord granted repentance and faith to more and more sinners. Listen, church, nothing, nothing Nothing can stop the gospel from advancing where God intends for it to go. Nothing. No opposition from the gospel, no matter how violent or pervasive, will ever prevent the gospel from going to the ends of the earth. No opposition to the gospel can prevent you from going with the gospel to your neighbors and co-workers. And no opposition to the gospel is ever going to prevent the gospel from going to the ends of the earth to reach every tribe, every nation, every language, and every race. We know it's going to happen. And furthermore, God's chosen means for the gospel going to the ends of the earth is the church of Jesus Christ. And what do we see of the church at the end of this story? Look at verse 25. 
And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now this is going to set us up for next week, but I want to highlight this as we close our section talking about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth no matter what opposition we face. Last time we saw Barnabas and Saul last week, they were up in Antioch. They spent about a year there doing church planting, right? And at the end of that story, we're told that they took up a collection for the impoverished and suffering church in Jerusalem. And and Barnabas and Saul came back to Jerusalem with that offering, with that gift. And now we're told, after having completed that service, now they return to Antioch. This time with this guy named John Mark. And now the church is poised for the fulfillment of the mission to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And that ends the first half of the book of Acts. In the first 12 chapters, the focus has been on the church in its infancy as it's established there in Jerusalem. And from chapter 13 next week and onward, the focus shifts to the ends of the earth. As Barnabas and Saul and then Barnabas and uh, uh, then, then Paul and Silas, and then Paul by himself, go off on these missionary journeys, and churches are planted and established all throughout the land. And why? Because that was God's plan to accomplish the mission. His chosen means for taking the gospel to the nations was, in general, the church, and in particular, through the means of planting and establishing churches that will plant and establish more churches. And so here we are, church. We're given the same mission. You shall be my witnesses in Buford and Decula and in the surrounding regions of Gwinnett and Hall and Barrow and Jackson counties and to the ends of the earth. And as we step out in faith to accomplish that mission, we should expect opposition. We have an enemy. We have an enemy that wants to stop the advance of the gospel. We have an enemy that wants to keep us silent, that wants to keep you silent. But we know that that enemy was defeated at Calvary. He has no power over us. He is a defeated foe and his days are numbered. And so as we face that opposition, what do we do? We pray and we trust God. Knowing that no matter how fierce the opposition may get, No matter how bad it gets, we can trust God because we know that he can and he will do whatever is necessary to build his church, sustain his church, grow his church, and advance his gospel wherever it must go. So let's do that. Let's pray and let's trust the character and heart of our God to do just that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for recording this incredible story, this sad story, this joy-filled story, this humorous story on the pages of Scripture to remind us, Father, that this task that you've given us, that we've been talking about each and every week, that you've been slamming us over the head with, take the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
and the implications of that for our life and our neighborhood, our workplace, our community, and the implications of that for our church and whatever that might be. We know that we're going to face opposition as we seek to be faithful to that. We're reminded of that. We see that on the pages of Scripture. We know that we're going to face opposition. We have faced opposition. We will face opposition. But Lord, we trust that you're going to do whatever you have to do to ensure that the gospel keeps advancing and to ensure that this church that you have made, that the gates of hell will never prevail against it. So, Father, we lay ourselves before you and we ask that you would do just that. Enlarge our faith in you. Enlarge our trust in you. Cause us to trust you unequivocally and without condition as we seek to be obedient to the call that you put on our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.